Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Interfaith America podcast with me, Ibu Patel. We'd love your help in growing the community of listeners. Please review, subscribe, and share. And if you want to talk more about this podcast, feel free to tweet me at Ibu Patel. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This is the Interfaith America podcast, and I'm Ibu Patel. Every community needs a risk-taker and a leader who is willing to point to the horizon and then bring the community along. Kashif Sheikh is just that person. He is co-founder of the Pillars Fund, one of the most important philanthropic institutions in the American Muslim community, and he currently serves as the president. I was there for several of the early conversations about the need for a new American Muslim foundation that would gather resources from Muslims who had been financially successful and invest those resources in Muslim civic initiatives that were going to build the infrastructure of a big tent American Islam that would serve both the community and the country. Kashif was just the right person at the right time. I can't wait to introduce you to Kashif, the Pillars Fund, the vision for an American Islam that welcomes its own internal diversity and contributes to the beauty of American pluralism. You helped to build a philanthropic foundation from scratch, and you are not a billionaire. And that's most billionaires don't build philanthropic foundations from scratch, by the way. And very, very few people who are not in that category do what you have done. I just wanted an institution that saw and celebrated our people. If the only introduction the world had to Muslims was through the Pillars Fund, what would they see? I think they would see a really amazing, incredibly diverse, talented, multi-generational, philanthropic communities around the country. I think to me, in a lot of ways, it sounds somewhat cheesy, but Pillars has been kind of this like love letter to the communities that we're serving because I have been so inspired and motivated and pushed by our people, by, by Muslims in this country, even when I didn't particularly feel part of those communities or personally, I always sort of held on to that identity. And I think what people would really see with the work of Pillars is that, oh my goodness, like our work, it's so expansive. You could come into our network and you could meet a burgeoning filmmaker in Los Angeles trying to get a television show on Hulu. You could meet a mental health practitioner who's trying to prevent suicide in Muslim communities. You can meet an oral historian who's building a museum trying to document the history of Muslims in Brooklyn. There's so many amazing Muslims in this country. And I'm going to share with you sort of like an internal motto that we have always like lived by that I don't often share publicly, but I think it has really informed our work is that for the longest time, I think Muslims, no fault of their own, were sort of operating from a, can you like let us in lens? Like, you know, there was often this like, please let us in. And I I think Pillars from its very inception was like, nah, forget about that. Like, come check us out. We're like throwing a party. There's amazing people. There's awesome food. There's dancing. There's everything. And if you want to be a part of it, you're welcome to join. And it was less about catering to the image that people thought of Muslims and saying, we're not trying to like 
there's always this idea of trying to uh, change the perception of who you are. We're not trying to do that. What we're trying to do is just live a life as we are and be exactly who we are. And we know that, you know, through that lens, people are going to come and be like, whoa, these, these guys at Pillars, these Muslims are doing some pretty fun stuff and we want to be a part of it. And so that's really been the goal of the organization is to support this next generation of leaders. Who are the interesting people? Who are those Muslims? Like, where is that next 23, 24-year-old who has this idea that, you know, might sound crazy on paper, but we're like, you know what, let's put some money towards it and see, see what happens with it. So that's really how I think about our work. I mean, I love it. And I got to say, if there is another Kashif Sheikh out there, the it will tilt the earth on its axis. I don't, I don't think I don't think the atmosphere can take that much uh, that much energy. But I want to I want to double click on a couple parts of this one. I, I just want to emphasize the work of the Pillars Fund is to find creative, interesting endeavors within the American Muslim community. You are helping to architect a community that is true to its past. That's writing its future, and that's making a contribution to America. And I mean, I just think that's so powerful. I mean, I've experienced that you and I have been friends for 12, 15 years. And so I've got, I've got some intimacy with this. One of the things I think that's the, one of the metaphors that's emerging in my mind, one of the images is I talk about America as a potluck supper and not as a melting pot, right? And you're saying, hey, listen, Muslims aren't showing up to your door with our biryani and knocking and saying, "Hey, can can you please let us in? And will you would would you like to try some of our our feast food? We're hosting the potluck. We're making the biryani. We're singing the kavali. We're saying, come to our place and you bring your dish. You bring your dish. Like you are welcome. But we are proud of who we are. We're proud of what we're building and we're moving forward. I just think that that's that's so powerful. And I, and and you know, you exude that energy, and I have seen the reality of it. Thank you. Yeah. So Pillars essentially operates two main programs, our Catalyze Fund, which is really the program that supports the the civic institutions in which we have, and and you can learn about all this work in PillarsFund.org, but that's sort of our bread and butter of our work. And we have three main areas that we support in that fund, which is reimagining public safety, civic engagement, and mental health and trauma. And those are the three areas that we're really focused. And then we have the Pillars Artist Fellowship, which is specifically meant to support Muslim artists through this incredible opportunity that we have been partnering with the actor Riz Ahmad on, which uh, finds burgeoning directors and writers and storytellers. And so those are our two main areas. But the idea is really the same, is to find exciting, interesting, fun Muslims doing really cool work and be able to support them financially. Let's talk about you for just a second here. You are many things. You are not an imam. You're not a scholar of Islam. You are not the most ritualistic Muslim in the world, and nor am I. And yet, here we are doing things deeply connected to our faith. You left a comfortable job at the McCormick Foundation to try to make this happen. So tell me, what is it about how you understand your faith and identity? Recognizing, again, you're not an imam. You're not a scholar. You're not the most ritualistic Muslim. And yet you feel a connection such that you took a significant risk and did a ton of work to help to launch the first participatory Muslim philanthropic foundation in the country. Give us a sense of your own Muslim identity and relationship to the tradition of Islam. So I think that to me, I grew up Muslim. My parents are Pakistani immigrants. The Islam that I saw growing up was actually quite beautiful because my my mother 
who has since passed, was very ritualistic. So the way that she understood her faith was through prayer, was through the Quran, was through writing checks to the less fortunate. So she had a, a very literal interpretation of how to be a Muslim. And my dad had a less literal interpretation. To him, he had a, a really intense belief in God. The man is 73 years old. He he has five stents in his heart. He has lived a life and still uh, I've never heard him complain about anything in his life. The biggest lesson he really taught us was just humility and being grateful. It was actually one of the biggest, it's one of the ways to, the easiest way to get my dad angry is to complain about something because he will be the first one to tell you that we are so fortunate that we have had so much privilege in our life. And so to me, I got to experience an Islam that was really both ritualistic in some ways, but also very like almost abstract in a lot of ways. My dad's uh, love of music, my dad's love of art, all of these things were sort of informed as I was growing up trying to figure out, well, where do I fall on the spectrum? Who am I? And I think that, you know, we're probably going to talk a little bit about the ways that 9-11 had a huge impact, but that had a, a really big impact on me because I was 18 when it happened. And so it sort of forced me to confront this, this question of, of who am I and what is my identity? And I think that to me, being a Muslim was something that I was really proud of. I didn't quite know what that meant and 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 really um, tried to figure out. And I think pillars in a really kind of divine way has kind of led me to the community and helped me to understand who I am. I was always searching. I was always searching for my people. I was always searching for my identity. And I think that there was always this, this draw about Islam because it was such a huge part of my childhood and sort of who we were. The Muslims that I knew, the Muslims that I started to get to know were really interesting and exciting and doing really cool things. And I just wanted to be a part of that club, frankly. And so Pillars, I think most people that know me are pretty surprised to know that this is the work that I do. But at the same time, if you really know me, you know that this identity and this faith has, has meant a lot to me. And so without being a scholar, without being an imam, because I am not those things, I'm not super learned in this faith, but I know what it means to me. I know what it feels uh, I know why it's important to me. And so Pillars has really kind of strengthened that and given me that community and given me that the humility to also say that I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm making mistakes every single day, but I really am proud to be a Muslim and I'm really proud of the people that I'm in community with. You know, one of the things about the post 9-11 era in which I came of age in many ways also, I think I was uh, 25, 26 it creates a new space in both the American Muslim community and in America in general, which is, I call it a civic Muslim identity, right? Like before, it was very hard to be a Muslim outside of the mosque. You didn't hear Muslims. You certainly didn't see us on TV minus the kind of Muhammad Ali biopic. Those are super important, right? But but you certainly didn't see us on television. You didn't hear us on the radio, et cetera, et cetera. If you were a Muslim, it was because you, you were deeply ritualistic and it was it only existed within certain narrow spheres of American life. Big for Muslims, small in the pond of America. But because of the trauma of 9-11, the multiple traumas, a space emerges where people who express their Muslim identity through civic institutions and actions, Rami Nishashibi, Zinat Rahman, Farhan Latif, Maggie Siddiqui. It's a long list, right? And, and there's various levels of ritual observance. There's people who are very observant, like Rami. There's people who are less observant. But 
a principal mode of expression is civic action and and civic institution building. And we should say, you know, that's not new in America or for Muslims. African-American Muslims have been doing it for generations, but it was new for immigrant Muslims. And I would certainly have a more tenuous relationship with the tradition of Islam had that space not emerged, because it is a principal way that I express my identity, and and I I think that that's the case for you. Yeah, and I'm I'm really glad that you you brought up Black Muslims because I think that that you're a hundred percent right in that. For those that aren't aware, one third of Muslims in America are Black, and and really when you look at the the spread and sort of what American Muslim identity looks like, it's it's really largely through Black communities. And I think immigrant communities have sort of been building on top of this incredible infrastructure. And, you know, when you look at the civil rights movement, you look at, you know, for myself personally, you know, there was two moments for me that that shaped who I am. The first was the activism around 9-11. And the second is reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, which, which most people will tell you had a profound impact on them um, for so many different reasons. And I was 18 when I read uh, Malcolm X's autobiography. And so you're absolutely right. I think that what it forced us to do, it, it almost forced us to kind of resolve some of our both external and internal issues kind of in public. Like, you know, our community is not immune from things like domestic abuse and and uh, suicide and all these things. And, and at the same time, we're also being targeted uh, for being terrorists and this and that. And I think that for us, that was such a strange time, that post 9-11 world, because you are you're really trying to work your shit out in public. You're really trying to sort of figure out who you are personally, but you're also trying to build institutions that can speak to the, the and react to some of the, the real trauma that was happening. And so, yeah, I think that it's really incredible to reflect back now 20 years later as to how many activists and how many leaders came out of that moment um, and how different of a place we are as a result because of it. So let, let me ask this. Could pillars have been built in the year 2000, a year before 9-11? I don't think so, because I think that when you look at the work that was happening, particularly whether it be 2000 or 2002, because obviously, you know, 9-11 had this massive impact. I think we were always sort of almost in this defensive because what happened was that Muslims of who we were was being defined for us, whether it was through television, whether it was through conversations every day. Um, we never really had the luxury or the space or the resources, frankly, to be able to have institutions that kind of, like I said earlier, had had like the dance party that people could come and, and check out. We, they were they were like fighting the fight and and trying to like undo these really harmful narratives. And it's not to say that we aren't, but I also think that one key thing of why pillars sort of exist today and why I think it's been successful is that you have another generation as well. Like our generation, I think of my generation. As sad as it makes me, I've started to realize there is a generation that's younger than me and they're Probably smarter two than generations me. younger they, than you. Yeah. Two, there's like two generations, exactly. And I think one of the, the biggest shifts that I've seen is that I have found that newer generations, for better or worse, I know we'll get into this, they're a bit more audacious. They're a bit more bold. And, and I think that for us... I think that while we dreamed, while we thought that we could make a lot of change, I think young people today are sort of, they come out the womb like, we're not going to take this. And, you know, that comes with good and bad. But I think for us, 
I think that we were bridge builders and I think that's really good. But I think at some points we did, we were a bit too nice, if I'm being really honest. I think that we didn't always have the boldness to be able to do the things that I think are needed to build institutions and to not be worried about what other people think. And so I I don't think Pillars would have been able to exist the same way in 2000 that it does in 2022. And we also now have a new generation of people who are not afraid to go into the arts. They're not afraid. We have more role models. We have, you know, I talk about Riz, like Riz is my age, exactly. I grew up watching him on film. I didn't have someone when I was 15 on film that I could admire. I make this joke, like the first brown person I ever saw on screen was the guitarist for Sum 41. And my mind was blown. I saw this guy and I was like, he's a brown dude playing guitar. I play guitar. Like, maybe I could be a rock star. So, So I think that's a huge difference. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. By the way, if you're enjoying this conversation, you ought to check out my new book, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. It's a guide for those who want to make positive social change and an invitation into the next chapter of American religion, a chapter I'm calling Interfaith America. We Need to Build is published by Beacon Press and available wherever you buy books. Now, back to the podcast. I'm going to ask you to be specific about three things, uh, all yep. of which you've already touched on, but let's just drill down one, one click deeper on each of these. So one is you talked about seeing what other minority communities had built in terms of their own philanthropic and communal infrastructure. So this is the Interfaith America podcast. And a huge part of what I focus on is how we learn from each other across identity communities, how Jews learn from Catholics, how Catholics learn from Methodists, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something you saw within another minority religious community where you're like, we got to do that in the American Muslim community? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So the Jewish community has inspired me to no end. I think how thoughtful, how networked their philanthropic institutions are has been something that is so admirable and so inspiring. And there, I have two stories about that that I think really hammer home how important they were. My co-founder, who you know, Shakib Alam, uh, who we started uh, Pillars together. Great guy, he, yep. Great guy. And and I had this email and, and one day I've been meaning to like, like print it out and frame it. It was right before Pillars was about to launch. This was about 2010, 2011. And he sends us, uh, the few of us that it started, there was about five of us. And he sent this email and I can't, I, I'm going to sort of mess up which institution it was, but he he was in Boston at the time. And he said, hey, I just came back from a dinner for, and, and excuse me, I can't remember what the Jewish organization was, but it was, a, it was a Jewish philanthropy. And they had just given, you know, they had just sort of celebrated giving away like $50 million to, you know, et cetera, what it was. And, and he, I still have this email where he said, you know, how inspiring is this? One day, inshallah, like Pillars is going to be able to host our own event where we can sort of talk about and support our communities. This is the model that we really want to try to replicate. So this is Interfaith America. I mean, it's so inspiring, right? Like that's yeah. like you're a Muslim at at a dinner of a Jewish philanthropy, inspired by what that philanthropy is doing and saying, we can do our own Muslim version of this. That's Interfaith America. Absolutely. That absolutely is. And and that 
I, I still remember that email and I still have it. And it still sort of sends chills down my spine when I think about sort of that was the, the, the motivation. And then the second story is, so Pillars, you should think of it in sort of two phases. The first was we did it for about five or six years as a volunteer-based fund while I was working at McCormick. And then we were transitioning it to become a full-time institution. In order to do that, we needed to attract some seed investment to be able to get this thing off the ground. And I remember we went to a funder in 2015, 2016, it was a Shakib and I, we had our, like our little like suits on and you know me, I, it takes a lot for me to wear a suit. A so back in the day, like I actually was wearing a suit uh, and was, was in these meetings and a gentleman said, you know, he was Jewish and he said, you know, what's so inspiring about this meeting is that I imagine my grandfather 70 years ago was sort of doing what you two are doing right now to build the Jewish institutions. And it was such a cool moment because he talked about how inspired he was by that. And then, you know, it wasn't just Jewish communities, you know, like uh, the Sikh community, I think they built the Sikh coalition around 9-11 as well. And it's a community that I admire and love and have so much respect for. So it wasn't just the Jewish community, but there was a lot of communities that really sort of inspired us. But I think a lot about those Jewish institutions in which we really modeled ourselves after. You know, faith is a bridge of cooperation, right? And it's a mutual enrichment for all of us. And those are powerful illustrations of that. Okay, two more concrete questions. You and I talk a lot about institution building. You've talked about that. The Pillars Fund is heavily involved in building civic institutions. Tell me, in 30 years, if the Pillars Fund is successful in nurturing a set of civic leaders and strengthening a set of civic institutions within the American Muslim community, what does the civic infrastructure of American Islam look like? I think that if we do our job right, and I think we're starting to slowly see some of these gains, is that the idea that someone is Muslim or the idea that someone, you know, a Muslim person is doing why won't be novel anymore. You're seeing a little bit on the on the micro level where I'm from Ohio and a lot of my friends whose teachers, they'll sort of just they're Muslim and they they won't, you know, even think twice about it. To me, I think that needs to expand to so many things. As opposed to when we grew up where it was like our dad yelled, hey, beta, Hakeem Olajuwon is on the TV, right? <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. I think anyone of our generation... I love Hakeem Olajuwon. I feel so bad for him because the hopes and dreams of all Muslim youth (laughs) was like on that guy. Like everyone remembers the Sports Illustrated or I think it was the Sports Illustrated for kids where he talked about fasting while he was in the playoffs. Yeah, totally. Like it was so novel. And to his credit, he was a once in a generational talent. And I think that uh, we're so proud to have someone like Hakeem to look up to. But I think that in 30 years from now, the goal is to have 50 Hakeems, is to have, and not just in sports, but in television, in civic life, in uh, schools, and whatever it might be, so that it's not so novel. I think, to me, that's what's really exciting about where we're headed, is that now we, you know, I get really frustrated by the whole, like, first Muslim to do this or the first Muslim that like is that. And I know it's like a talking point that a lot of people use and I think it's wonderful, but I actually think that it's going to be really exciting to me when we're not like, oh my God, he's the first Muslim who's nominated for an Oscar. We're just yeah. going to have like a Muslim who's nominated for an Oscar and you're going to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, right. So that's really, if we do our job well, I joke that our goal is to like inundate the marketplace with Muslims. Like that's really sort of to use capitalistic terms. Yeah, so Muslims- 
are everywhere, right? They're they're yeah. winning Nobel prizes in literature and science. They're yeah. they're writing television. They're they're playing sports. Uh, yeah. They're teaching high school. They're coaching baseball. Yeah, I mean, I it's a civic infrastructure. It's what a society. It's Medina, right? Like yeah. when when the Prophet Muhammad made the peace and blessings of God be upon him moves to Yathrib and the city changes its name to Medina. He builds civic institutions. Yeah. He builds a market. Absolutely. He builds a community center that's a masjid. He builds a constitution, right? You're building through both inspiration and financial resources, the civic institutions of a community that then enriches the rest of the nation. It's not separate. Yeah. It's not separate. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about a second big piece of what of what the Pillars Fund does, which is around media representation. And, you know, I when Shanaz and I are watching Rami, right, or when we've got Miss Marvel on, I'll call the boys over and I'll be like, gosh, you've had something to do with that, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> like, your name is your name is uh, loaded about our house pretty frequently. You have really led the foundation in this direction to say, we need Muslim storytellers. And you have been unbelievably courageous in reaching out to Hassan Minaj, Riz Ahmed, this whole set of people to say, Will you help run a narrative strategy for the Pillars Fund and let's have a range of Muslim stories on television? Tell us about one or two things you're especially proud of in that realm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for that. And 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 to be clear, I we're very fortunate to have like be able to like promote and support our friends doing this. But those shows are are the brainchilds of those people, and they are brilliant and smart and amazing. And uh, I would never want to take any credit away from them. Before I delve into that, I think it's important to know why I felt really you know inspired to do this work. I, I was a kid. My sister and I joke, uh, we're two years apart. My parents were immigrants. They were working all the time. They weren't home. Uh, so television really raised us. Like I learned about what prom was through Full House. Like I didn't know what prom was. I learned about all these like things about American life through television. So I'm a TV junkie. I love, you know, my, my sister and I will like sit and then when we're together, we'll just watch old television shows that we grew up on and and it's 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 something that gives us a lot of comfort and a lot of joy and so for me I really had to think about the work that Pillars was trying to do. I've always said that no one wakes up hating Muslims. It's not something that you just wake up one day and you hate them. These are intentionally derived strategies to make people pigeonhole who uh, Muslims are and that's largely perpetuated through popular culture through television. I don't think it was long ago where all the representation that we saw on television was Muslims being terrorists, Muslims being the, the ones that are creating a lot of harm. And so I think for us, one of the really amazing things that I've seen over the last five to 10 years is more and more Muslims in the mainstream. We've seen more Muslims sort of break through and and be really you know not shy about their identity and who they are and in a show like Rami for example really not shy about grappling with what it means to be muslim and so i think it was really important for pillars to make you know to be a part of this cultural moment and help move it along and so one of my favorite stories is when the show was about to premiere he'd sent me the pilot i'd seen it and i loved it and i was like oh man you're going to get people like people are going to have some some thoughts on this and he asked me and he said, I, I really want to do some type of like premiere, like a Muslim premiere. He said, the network is going to do the whole premiere, et cetera. But I want to do something that's like, I want imams and Muslims in the room. I want to engage with my people with this show. 
And he's like, can you help us do that? And so we facilitated this conversation. Uh, it was in New York where he spoke and we it was sold out. I think we probably had about a hundred people there um, of all stripes. You had imams, you had community leaders, et cetera. And then you had a Q&A and a conversation with him afterwards. And I'll tell you why that was like so important to me was because one of the things that's been really exciting about Rami's ascent into fame and the show doing so well is that Rami is, is a part of our community. Like he cares like what Muslims think. Like this is a show that is meant to actually talk about how beautiful the faith is. And, and he is meant to talk about like his character is about uh, what I love about that show is that his character is like, he's like, I'm doing all the wrong things. It's not the faith that's problematic. It's me that's problematic. I love that about the show without, without like, and still very human and, and relatable. Yeah. And it's not like a guilt trip, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's done such a great job of sort of saying that, and he was purposefully pushing back against this narrative because I think the other, the, the pendulum swung the other way towards the last five years where when Muslims weren't sort of the terrorists on screen, the other thing they were, the cool Muslim was like, they didn't pray or they did, they weren't religious or they were sort of an atheist, which again, that's totally cool. Like there's, there's Muslims that are like that. And that's, that's totally great and fine. But he wanted to show what a devout Muslim looked like. He wanted to like put a devout Muslim who believes in God on screen. So anyways, I think that's, that was one really cool and exciting thing that we got to do. And I watched him engage. I watched a show with like a pretty graphic sex scene in it. And I watched like an imam watching it. But at the same time, I watched the care through which he navigated the conversation and why he made the choices that he made. So that was really cool. And then I think the second thing I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention is our relationship with the actor Riz Ahmed, which launched the Pillars Artist Fellowship, which was sort of an idea that we had been floating around for the last couple of years. But what would it look like if we supported Muslim artists directly? And thanks to my incredible team, Arij Makati, who I just call, always have to call out, and my colleague, Kalia Abiyade, both of whom Pillars doesn't exist today without them really helped devise the strategy and build a program. And we just launched it earlier this year where we have been working with 10 just amazing, amazing, amazing Muslim artists who are on the brink. Like I promise you in about five years from now, some of those are going to be at the Oscars. Some of them are going to be at the Golden Globe. Some of them are going to have shows and television and movies that we're going to be talking about in the mainstream. And so that I think has been really exciting. I remember seeing Rami at a R-A-M-Y, Rami, uh, the TV show guy uh, at the Tonys or not the Tonys, but whatever, uh, you know, TV the, awards the special. Golden, yeah, he was the, at the Golden, Golden Globes. Globes. And he won and he gets up there and he's like, I know you, I know you think I'm the sound guy, you know, yeah. but really I acted my own yeah. one man show. And it's, it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was such a great line where he was like, I know he was quiet for a minute. And he said, I know most of you don't know who I am right. <laughs> or haven't seen the show. Yeah, he's great. He's and it's 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 really nice. And Hassan Minaj is, you know, sort of, you know, in that category as well. Uh, and part of what we want to do is, you know, I don't want to go on a soapbox about this, but one of the challenges has been it's been largely South Asian men. Yeah. So well, there's also Miss Marvel. You know, there's there's yeah. the whole world of of Miss Marvel. That has been not to go on too much of a tangent, but that has been one of the most joyful experiences of my life. Like I've known Sana for a very long time, and you know, she's another one who really cared she called me and she was she wanted was like she, this was her 
this was her show to celebrate our communities. And she was really nervous and she just wanted to make sure that our communities felt that and, and loved it. And I can tell you, and I would tell her when I would see some early screeners, I was like, people are going to love this. And I, I can tell you the reaction of Miss Marvel has been so fun and beautiful, like from kids, like I have like a seven-year-old niece who's like runs around the house pretending to be Miss Marvel to sort of like, your imagination runs wild. And I think that show more than any other show that I've seen really demonstrates the power of imagination and why representation is so important because you're going to have a whole generation of kids emulating this. It is the brown girls from Jersey who saved the world, right? Yeah. It is. And, and I, I love how kind of realistic the friend scenes are and the high school and the family scenes. It's just, it's a beautiful show. It's because it's, I, I'll say one last thing is that, and Part We talked about representation. Why representation is important is because those are not contrived scenes. Those are from her childhood. That's what happens when you have people from our communities talking about our communities. The the representation is authentic, and that's what people resonate to. Yeah, it's, it's a story that people, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in that household, but I knew people who did, right? Yep. And it's a beautiful thing to note that there's a, a hundred different Muslim American experiences, and so many of them are recognizable. They're recognizable, yep. you know, and they're relatable, which is why it's not a show on some Muslim TV channel. It's a show with, with wide Disney, distribution. Like the biggest platform in the world. Yeah, yeah, that lots of people are relating to, you know, and there's some Jewish kid or some Sikh kid or some Jane kid who's like, that's my life, you know? Yeah. Totally. All right. Sensitive question. Yeah. So let's do it. We live in this, you know, very particular cultural moment. You know, every moment is particular, but I think this is we live in an on an edge these days that is different than say 2010, 2011. And in certain circles of America, religious and racial minorities are encouraged to speak about our identities in the narrative structure of persecution. And I see this with my kids, you know, Khalil and Zaid, who you know, 12 and 15. There are people who are much more likely to ask them about how they've been victims of Islamophobia than how they've been inspired by Islam. And this is not the intent, but actually the, the impact is very clear. There's people who think Islamophobia is more important than Islam. And that, in fact, if Islamophobia didn't exist, they wouldn't care about Islam at all. And I am concerned about this. I'm concerned about this because Islam matters whether or not there's Islamophobia. Muslims matter whether we are persecuted or not. Our story should be told, not just through the lens of how we are victims. But I'm curious how you think this might be affecting American Muslim identity, particularly for people whose identities are in development, like my kids, right? That they're constantly asked to narrate their identity as one of a victim and not as one that inspires them to, you know, do what Islam ought to inspire you to do, which is to be more generous, to be, to be a bridge builder, to be a mercy, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious how you see this. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here. I think it's really important to one first contextualize the moment. And I think the reason I think that's important is because and I know you can relate to this because, you know, you grew up sort of in that activist world and all of your work was sort of like the foundation of it was sort of being an activist and, and trying to make change in the world. And I think we're living in really interesting times where when you and I were young, it was very much the culture and the machine 
our voices were not even a blip on it. And so we had to fight incredibly hard to be seen and get our issues raised. And we're living in a sort of an interesting cultural moment where our voices are now louder than they've ever been. And they're they're almost the status quo in a lot of ways, because what we're sort of experiencing right now is sort of a culture in which talking about systemic racism, talking about the economic system in which we live in are just more accepted and they're more sort of mainstream. So what's happening is that you're now having a lot of those folks who were used to being on the fringes and, and, and fighting. Now they're, it's like they were screaming in a megaphone and the megaphone was off and they were yelling as loud as they can. And now the megaphone is on and they're like screaming still. And it's really loud. Like, that's a great image. That's a great image. Yeah, That's how I think of it. So I think it's important to talk about the harm that Islamophobia has caused. I think that's very important because there are some communities that have suffered for a really long time. I also think it's very, very important to celebrate what the faith means to us. And so the, to the message I would tell to your kids is that exactly that is that I think it's our job to sort of flip that that narrative. When someone is sort of trying to talk about all the things that Islamophobia has taken away from us, you could both acknowledge that and recognize that. But what you can also say is that despite that, we are a community that has so much to offer. We are a community that has so much joy. And this faith has really, really inspired us. I think that we have this opportunity for Muslims in America to be able to draw from our faith tradition. I think we have this opportunity, and that's what Pillars is essentially trying to do, is yes, we are funding the CUNY Clears of the world who are fighting for the rights for people who have had them taken away. But this Artist Fellowship is also meant to be a celebration of the fact that arts and culture are a massive part of our faith. There's a statistic that comes to mind that is has really shaken me. We did this project a couple of years ago, or about two years ago, with this reputable agency where we were collecting scripts by Muslim creators. They could write about anything they wanted. We were going to select 10 of them and we were going to you know, help them get them made. So this was open to all Muslims. You could write about anything you want. 80, I think it was 80% or more of them were about national security and about terrorism, et cetera. And I think it's partly because that's what they think they need to do to be seen to get these scripts made. And so I think that that's the trauma that I'm talking about is that even Muslims internally have this trauma that we have to undo. But I do think that there's opportunities now for us, for our communities to lean into the joy and the tradition you know, like I love our faith because it is it is a fun faith. It is one that celebrates arts and culture. Yeah. Look, look at the architecture of the world. Look at these mosques. Like right. that. Like, yeah, I think that's the opportunity that we have. And that's what we're trying to do. To emphasize Islamophobia, not Islam, is to distort the religion and to distort our identities. And my concern is not how Muslims think about our own identities. My concern is how, about how the invitation is made. So 10 or 12 years ago, it was the Muslim villain. I'm curious, it concerns me now, is it all about the Muslim victim? And this is not the work that Pillars does, but does Pillars have to talk about its work this way to certain audiences in order to get a certain form of attention? And so again, it's the way the script is set up and the the character that you are invited to play. And look, you're 39, you are a major civic leader. You're not falling into this. Pillars is not falling into this. I'm concerned about 15-year-old Muslims, 23-year-old Muslims, and how 
the invitation is, tell me about how terribly you are treated on account of your religion instead of tell me about how beautiful Islamic civilization is and how you are an exponent of that. I hear that. And I think for a long time, no one even wanted to pay attention to the fact that the actions of the, like using the small example of like the terrorist representation was, was actually harmful. I think that, I think that's important to recognize. I get that. Look, I remember I'm on CNN once and I'm talking about the basic tenets of Islam and behind me, you know, I see this when I get home and I play the tape, there are images of terrorist training camps. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 some some lazy producer pulled the B-roll on Islam and it was yeah. terrorist training camps, yeah. you know? And I think, so to, to your point around victimhood, it's interesting, right? I, I, um, I think it's a really tough balance because it's like, how do you acknowledge harm, but also acknowledge the fact that you will not be defined by that harm? Are we balancing it at the right level? I don't know. I don't, it doesn't seem like it, but at the same time, I think it's important to center what the faith means to you and why it inspires you. I think to, to, to be clear, I think that's incredibly important. And I think that we have to sort of push that forward. And to your question of as to whether or not we have had to sort of play the victim or, or whatever it might be to sort of like, you know, fit into those narratives. Like I, I we haven't, and are we seeing a world in which people are having to do that? It's a really tricky question. Oh, let, let, me, let me be clear about something, right? I am not saying we Muslims are putting ourselves forward this way. I'm saying this is how the script is currently set. Yeah. This is how the diversity script is set. And actually the way you opened, right, which characterizing our, us as a marginalized community. And then in the middle, you talk about your dad. The only time he'd ever get mad is if people are not grateful. I'm not sure your dad would assent to us being a marginalized community. He might not like that characterization. I don't like that characterization. I, I call us a minority community, right? But I think to myself, you know, when people are talking about Christian privilege, I want to raise my hand and be like, uh, can I talk about Muslim privilege? We have the last prophet, the final revelation, all this great architecture, a billion and a half people around the world, et cetera, et cetera, right? I, okay, so we can get into this. I love this conversation. I don't think that it's actually a controversial statement to say that communities of color are marginalized in this country, and that includes many Muslims. I don't think that that's controversial. But it's not uncomplicated. Kashif, five of the top 10 highest earning income groups in America are people of color. So it's not uncomplicated. The highest earning income group is my people, Indian Americans. In the top 10 are your people, Pakistani Americans, right? Not uncomplicated. You, but we also have to remember we're talking about Muslims. We're not talking about Pakistanis. We're not talking about Indians. We're talking about Muslims in this country are are comprised of it's an incredibly diverse faith community. That is, I think that you and I are sort of like talking about the bubble from being in South Asian communities. And to, listen, I grew up in those South Asian communities. The majority of my friends' parents are doctors and engineers and have a lot of wealth and now are having vacation homes. I, I get that. And I'm not disagreeing with that. But to sort of put that over Muslims in America, I, I think that is where it becomes very far more nuanced because I don't think that Muslims in America are defined by one like Arab, South Asian, Black, whatever it might be. So Muslims in America are amongst the highest educated groups in the country. Immigrant Muslims, if you just extract immigrant Muslims, it is in like the top five. So the, the point that I'm making is not that there aren't difficulties. It's it's this. It's 
Is it a part of our religion to emphasize the worst parts of our experience? Or is it a part of our religion to emphasize the parts of our experience for which we ought to be grateful and that gratitude inspires a forward advancement? And the, the only point that I'm trying to make is that I, I just think that you have to hold both. That's the only point that I'm trying to make. I think that you have to emphasize the things that inspire us and the things that like to the Islam versus Islamophobia. I think you absolutely have to center the the beauty and, and what inspires us. But I do think I would argue for a large amount of Muslims, particularly in that post 9-11 world who were, whether they were held at Guantanamo, whether they were sort of charged, uh, have been held in prisons without any without any crimes. I think there's a large uh, group of people who who suffered and who totally. had, yeah. uh, and I think that you have to be able to both say that this happened, there is trauma and we have to undo this trauma and we have to recognize that there's trauma. That being said, we, we also have to do exactly as what you're talking about, which is talk about the resilience, talk about the fact that part of the reason why we're able to overcome trauma is because our faith tradition is what keeps us motivated and what keeps us inspired and what keeps us excited. So I, I, I'm in agreement with you that I think that we need to emphasize and support and, and really center that work that comes from a place of positivity and not necessarily sort of trying to paint us as victims. But at the same time, I have been doing this work for a really long time. And when I talk to a Muslim who was, whether they were unjustly detained or is food insecure or homeless or whatever it might be, I think they're going to have a different answer to this question. And I want to acknowledge. Or my kids who, I mean, you know, upper middle class kids and, you know, you know, a lot of these, right? Like who grow up never knowing when somebody's going to say terrorists in the playground. Like you kick the kickball and you never know when that's going to come out of somebody's. Look, that's not trauma as in being illegally detained. Right. But it sucks. And I am, I am not denying that. And that's all I think. I am only, yeah. I'm only saying this, that Islamophobia does not make Islam. Islam is yeah. prior to Islamophobia. Islam is what forms our identities and what we principally bring into the world. And we face the barriers and the demons of Islamophobia. But hopefully we don't absorb them such that they become our identity. My concern is that there's ample invitation out there to do so. Not sure. generated by Muslims, generated by by a diversity narrative that seeks stories of Islamophobia more than stories of Islam. To be clear, that infrastructure you're talking about that I've seen play out in my field of philanthropy, I, I don't disagree with that. I think part of what we have to do, though, is part of that is reclaiming our own stories and reclaiming and being able to talk about it's our job as Muslims to be able to go out there and talk about what inspires us and what parts of this faith really make us resilient and what we want to, you know, like who we are today and not fall into that framework because that framework exists. It's not to deny that that framework exists. I think I'm just, I also don't want to deny the experiences of For sure. those Muslims yeah. who have, you know, I have lived a privileged life. I make no secret about that. I, I have not been financially insecure. So I, so I cannot sort of speak to those experiences plenty of Muslims have and have been exacerbated through issues of immigration, through documentation, through post 9-11. Yep. And I want to make sure that we're honoring what those Muslims have experienced because it is real deep trauma. That being said, I agree with the framework that you're referencing. So listen, I, you know, I think that you have 
provided a, a case study on how to do this and how to talk about the assets, the cathedrals, you know, the grand mosques that we bring, you're right. We're inviting you to our potluck, bring your contribution, but we're, we're throwing a party and we're proud of our culture and our faith and our civilization. And I hope that the way we have spoken about our tradition and its invitation and its isan, its excellence, is a model for others, not just Muslims, to be proud of and speak of their identity, but people of all faiths and philosophies. And Kashif, my friend, it's always awesome. I love our conversations, Ibu. I'm, I've said this to you, and I'll say this to you publicly. You have been one of my earliest supporters and a brother to me and someone who I admire and look up to. I'm so grateful that we got to have this conversation that you thought of me to be on this podcast. Thank you, mashallah, for you, for the work of the Pillars Fund, and, you know, for the opportunity to build Interfaith America, the institution and the nation with you. So thank you. Thank you. Virtually every community at some point is faced by this daunting question. Are you going to be defined by the prejudice and bigotry visited upon you? Or are you going to be defined by your original identity and the manner in which that identity gives you strength to respond to that prejudice and bigotry? As you can see from this conversation with Kashif, we American Muslims are looking forward and we're welcoming everybody in. To read more about this conversation and to find resources and stories about bridge building in our religiously diverse nation, visit our website, interfaithamerica.org. I'm Ibu Patel. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is a production by Interfaith America and Philo's Future Media. I'm your host, Ibu Patel. The Interfaith America team is Silma Suba, executive producer, Monique Parsons, senior producer, Terry Simon, coordinating producer, Neil Agarwal, researcher, Johanna Zorn, provided editorial support. Production by Philo's Future Media team, Keisha T.K. Dutess, executive producer, Manny Faces, producer and audio editor. Share this show with a friend. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Find more resources on religious diversity, racial equity, bridging and belonging, Dean and dunya, faith and world at www.interfaithamerica.org.